The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Joining us for the week, trending Kate Mulder, who is an arts and culture freelance journalist, and a fellow called John Gibbons, who occasionally turns up in this programme discussing environmental issues every Thursday. Vital part of the programme. Thank you both for joining us. Kate, first of all, tell us about the story involving the Agriculture Minister, Charlie McConnell. Why does he want restaurants and food outlets to cut down on the amount of food they serve? So, in short, it's all about food waste. And to be perfectly honest, I can see both sides of the coin here. It's a real catch-22 because I also hate food waste. I think most of us do, but I also love going out for food and getting a decent decent portion. It's it's why people love pub grub. It's why they keep going back. Um, people love getting bang for their buck and I don't blame it but we also probably do eat too much and we definitely waste too much um, systems have been put in place to kind of target this apps brilliant apps like Too Good To Go will get you cheaper food that would have been chucked out anyway but it doesn't really work for leftover spuds on a plate um, and so he's suggesting that we do smaller portions and if you want to go back for seconds then pay for it Oh, that would drive people mad, the idea. You get less food than you used to at the same price, presumably, and then you want to top it up because you haven't been fed enough and you pay for it again. (laughs) Yeah, certainly. So it's an interesting take, but it's one I can see both sides on. Okay, what do you make of this, John Gibbons? Yeah, it's. I was surprised a little bit that that, uh, the minister approached it from the point of view of uh, food waste in restaurants and over-serving because restaurants will tell you that they're carefully trying to manage their budgets and rising costs. So the idea that restaurants are deliberately over-serving us, right? Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen it, Matt. I, I've spoken to a number of people about this today and asked them, you know, in your regular common or garden restaurants, you know, it's the American idea is where they pile it up in front of you and you sort of sit there and think, my God, what am I going to do with this? I haven't had that experience in, in sort of regular type restaurants. So I'm a little bit puzzled. I think his point about, about food waste is absolutely correct. But I think he might be approaching approaching it from the wrong Yeah, because view. it struck me that, say, if you have, you know, the pub grub, as you're suggesting, that what you don't want is at the end of the service to have a load of food left on the trays on the counter yeah, to be but, taken from. Uh, now, sometimes things can be used. I'm sure that's why you get chowders in a lot of restaurants because they're using food that hasn't actually been previously used. But the waste is probably not what's left on the plate by the customers. It's what might have been overcooked by the restaurant itself. That's right. And, and also, I mean, if we look at where the major uh, points of food waste, we're, we're looking at over three, three quarters of a million tonnes of food waste in Ireland per annum. And obviously, that isn't made up of a whole series of a few ounces here and a few ounces there left on people's uh, plates after their dinner. Clearly, that's not. The main sources of food waste are in the food production and distribution chain. And, of course, the chief culprits, or at least in my book, the chief culprits of this, of course, are the supermarkets, where they encourage us to waste food. They encourage us, for example... Well, in fairness, no, I have to say, we've had Food Cloud on this programme on a couple of occasions, and they've actually entered into contracts with the supermarkets like Tesco, for example, who now are going out of their way to make sure that any things that are unsold, particularly, particularly fresh produce, are put to good use. And they've made a concerted effort in relation to making sure that they've cut down on that. I think that's... That is progress. And again, that progress, Matt, didn't happen by itself. It happened in response to pressure from the public uh, objecting to food waste. In France, for example, uh, it's now illegal for supermarkets to throw away uh, consumable edible food. It's actually illegal. So it is a move in the right direction. But I'm actually talking about something a little bit different. For example, if you go into a supermarket today and they're offering you buy one, get one free, the so-called bog-off offers, that is encouraging people to over purchase food. A lot of that food, Matt, goes into your into your fridge 
spends a few days in there en route to the bin because you make this impulse purchase. You're not wasteful like that, Sean, are oh, you? Not me, not me, of course, but <laughs> other people, not other people. Yes, sir, I don't know, Kate, I would suspect lots of people love those offers because it gives them two days of food for maybe one and a half times the price. Yeah, certainly, and, and I understand completely what John is trying to say here. Uh, I think we potentially do have a waste problem, but there are many people who are, um, I follow a lot of kind of brilliant uh, chefs and, and cooks on Instagram who are basing themselves around the idea of wasting less. And so they're encouraging us to, instead of putting things in the compost bin, maybe uh, freeze them all together and make your own stock or uh, organising for the waste of what you chop off certain vegetables or, or this, that and the other. Um, and so their movement is happening, just perhaps not quick enough. A listener says, I work in a nursing home and the amount of food waste every day would feed a small estate. Uh, another one. In New Zealand, they offer a light dish or a larger serving. I'm a petite lady with a small appetite. The light version was perfect for me, but there should always be a choice as to what I eat, as what I would eat would never fill my husband, which is an interesting point. I mean, I do know there are some people who do look for the child's portions mm-hmm. when they're out at dinner uh, alongside somebody else. Another listener said, <clears throat> eat what fits in the palm of your hand. Anything more is a waste. God, I'd want a big hand to get away with that. Uh, if you do that, one, Matt, in a restaurant, people will look at you. <laughs> it would make sense, or would make sense, to sell meals at different sizes, small, medium or large, says another listener. Maybe that's what restaurants and cafes should be doing. I think it's a great idea. Uh, and of course, that's what McDonald's do. You can get super size or you can get a Big Mac or whatever. That's entirely true. You, 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 can, pick the, you can pick the size that's, that suits your appetite and, and maybe that is something that restaurants might look at as well. But I think it's further down the, the food chain as well. Uh, at production level, for example, Matt, uh, 40% of all the vegetables that are offered to supermarkets are rejected by them because they're not the wrong shape. They're so-called ugly veg, right? They're a little bit of crooked carrots and uh, slightly discoloured apples. Most of those, by the way, end up being chucked out. They're either put into recycling or they're simply thrown out. And that's a shocking way. So that's 40% of the veg that horticulturalists offer to supermarkets being rejected. Now, that's what I meant by supermarkets in particular, still being a big part of a food waste problem. And, and, and once the pressure comes on on that type of thing, hopefully we, the consumer as well, we need to be able to put up with food that is slightly less than completely pristine. It can still be healthy, but it just doesn't have to look perfectly perfect. edible. It just doesn't perfectly look perfectly edible. James Waterford says, my pet hate, I went to buy one red pepper today for a recipe, could only get a pack of three, mm. a green, a yellow and a red. Mm. I've actually seen that happen in my own local supermarket as well. Let's move on. The Epstein uh, revelations this week, I think a little bit of a damp squib because most of the names that were revealed were in relatively innocuous situations or had already been revealed previously. But there was an extraordinary story went around before the documents came out in relation to Jimmy Kimmel. And this is the American football star Aaron Rodgers who decided to smear Jimmy Kimmel. Tell us about this, Kate. So this was kind of interesting. In um, so it happened on Pat Mc, Pat McAfee's, excuse me, uh, ESPN show. He's a sports analyst over um, in the states, and he had um, one of the NFL's most valuable players. I think he's won it three or four times. Um, forgive me if I'm wrong. It's not my sport. Um, he's a brilliant quarterback. Yes, he's I, an absolutely tremendous. Player. I understand he plays sport, um, and so I understand he. Uh, said something, I believe I have it here, but said something along the lines of like, Jimmy Kimmel should be scared, the Epstein papers are coming out. Now, as you say, the Epstein papers came out this week, was a bit of a damn squib. 
that's kind of neither here nor there. I've seen, it's it's funny, it's been kind of an, uh, an exercise in how we approach celebrity cases, how I've seen it, because so many uh, stories have come out about celebrities over the years and the easiest thing is to make fun of them, to kind of not think of them as human or whatever. This is a story about child sex trafficking and we've seen a lot of people making jokes, making light, um, guessing who will be on it, who won't. And this is a case where someone threw out a joke and it went horribly wrong. Kimmel got right back to him on uh, Twitter and was like, your reckless words put my family in danger anymore and I'll bring you to court. And I think something like that needed to happen. We needed to stop joking about such a horrific case and pinpointing names whether or not they are on it. Yeah, John Gibbons, in this particular case, the Epstein thing, Epstein was a monstrous individual, Ghislaine Maxwell, who was his pimp to a certain extent, and she is now in prison because of it. A lot of powerful people have been linked to Epstein, including the likes of former presidents Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. And yet there are people who are on social media opining about various crimes that people are assumed to have committed without actually evidence to back up their claims. Yeah, this is the joys, not just of social media, but it's also the joys of these um, kind of free-form podcasts, which have become a huge thing, particularly in the States. Uh, this particular character, Rogers, apparently has paid a uh, million dollars to take part in this podcast, such as his pulling power. And the temptation, Matt, for that kind of money is to say something, to get some bang for their buck, to say something outrageous, to get the clicks, to get the wheels turning. And the temptation clearly is to to basically put it out there, to shoot shoot the breeze. Now, the the allegation made against Jimmy Kimmel is absolutely outrageous. I mean, the, the lowest, the most vile accusation you can make against a human being, I would suggest, is that they're involved in any way in child trafficking or child sex abuse. So, I mean, if if, if that had happened in Ireland, by the way, uh, this would be a, a slam dunk for a visit to the High Court. The difference, as you know, in America is they have an incredibly strong First Amendment protections for so-called free speech. Which oh. some people do not exercise responsibly. They oh, yeah. bang on about the right to free speech, but fail to recognise yeah. that with that comes a responsibility. Sure, but the bar for, for free speech in America is crazy high, and it allows uh, some outrageous slanders to be put into the public domain. And this really, I mean, you wonder, okay, Jimmy Kimmel, obviously as a, as a famous late night host, he, he, he has the ability to hit back. A lot of other people don't. And they get slammed by somebody like this and they're finished. And, and as Kate said, I mean, even Jimmy Kimmel is talking about experiencing death threats and, and, and the, the experience of, of feeling hunted and, and by a story like this. And you can only imagine the damage that this can do to somebody with less power and less protection than, than a Jimmy Kimmel. Okay, we need to take a break. John Gibbons and Kate DeMolder, stay with us. We've lots to get through in the week trending. We'll be talking with Gerard Dapoudou, who is a figure of major controversy in France at present, and the release of Oscar Pistorius from prison and other stories as well after we've had the uh, this break. So John Gibbons and Kate DeMolder are with us for the week trending. And Kate, there's a big story coming out of France, one of the best known actors from France internationally. I think possibly because he had the Hollywood hit green card back in the 90s, but he's been in lots of things that we've seen over the years. Gerard Depardieu, <coughs> who is at risk of being cancelled, perhaps correctly so, given the allegations against him. But actually, I thought he'd been cancelled a few years ago when he was up to a sorts of behaviour, including urinating on an airplane. You would think so, Matt. Um, but yeah. Sorry, and not in the toilet of the airplane. <laughs> yeah, no, no, quite different. Uh, yeah, the French kind of 
film industry is kind of an ecosystem all its own and it seems to be very forgiving to men who do terrible things. There was in 2020, um, prior to kind of COVID shutting down the world, the French Césars, I believe I'm saying that correctly, kind of the French version of the Oscars. Um, Adèle Hanel, uh, who's a very f- famous French film star, uh, stormed out, booing, I believe, when Roman Polanski, um, uh, a director who was convicted of the statutory rape for 13-year-old year girl in 1977. In the United States, and then, of course, he escaped from the United States mm-hmm. and has never been back since. Indeed. So in 2020, he was awarded Best Director, and that caused quite a scandal. Um, and so to see this, uh, to see this forgiveness happening to a man of a very similar crime. Um, Sorry, what is Jared Depardieu accused of doing? Because he hasn't been convicted of anything, has he? So, um, as per this article that I have in front of me, last month, um, a documentary release last month featured Depardieu um, making obscene remarks and sexualizing a young girl. Um, and for some reason, Macron is standing behind him. There's a brilliant um, quote attributed to this article. Depardieu is our heritage, and in France, you don't touch the heritage. So um, he can get away with doing whatever he wants to do because he's a national treasure? Seemingly so. What do you make of this, John Gibbons? Yeah, I think... Uh Maybe what has juiced this story up, Matt, even further is the fact that uh, Macron has weighed in behind Depardieu because Macron came in, I think it was 2017, he was elected and he kind of promised really to, to, to take on the, the French culture of ambiguity around, around, shall we say, sexual assault and so on. And he, for example, was a strong backer of the Me Too movement back in 2017. That was part of his pitch for the presidency. And, of course, famously, he's married to a much older woman. Uh, so he seemed to represent a new French take, moving away from the idea of the dominant male and towards a more gender equal. And I think a lot of people in France have been dismayed by the fact that Macron has really gone out in the stump for Depardieu. And he said, said he would not engage in a manhunt. Yeah, nobody's asking him to engage in a manhunt, but he's actually doing the opposite. Matt, he is actually pouring political capital into Depardieu. And this is a very risky strategy for a president. If Depardieu, for example, is convicted in the courts of one of these rape uh, allegations, what does Macron say then? That really presents him with, with I think, a, a, a real political dilemma. But I do think that there is, there's clearly, as, as Kate has identified, a culture uh, first of all, there's a culture in Hollywood, which we, we know about very well, but that culture also extends, uh, I think, into France, where there's, a, there's an ambiguity, a studied ambiguity about, shall we say, uh, unbalanced sexual relationships, which traditionally has meant male-dominant relationships, that, that, and also, if you like, power-dominant relationships. Depardieu is 75, and I think the phrase they use is that he's what's called old-school. And he's not the only one, by the way. There's many uh, men of a certain uh, generation who, whose behaviour uh, would, would be considered in, in, by today's standards to be, to be unacceptable. So he might argue that he's being judged by standards that didn't apply when he was a younger man. But, it, but the, the evidence from this recent documentary is that this old dog can't and hasn't learned any new tricks at all. OK, let's move to the Oscar Pistorius story. Remind us, Kate, about the circumstances in which he became such a major international figure. So, yeah, the, his, um, the Oscar Pistorius name is back in the news this week, and it's one I had kind of forgotten about, to be perfectly honest, but um, he was involved in an awful trial back in uh, 2013, I believe. So well, that's when he killed Riva Steenkamp. Yes. Um, murdered her. Yes. So 
the story goes, Reva Steenkamp was a former lover of Oscar Pistorius and the story goes um, that he shot her because he believed that he, she was an intruder. Um, into and his shot, house, yeah. Into his house. Um, shot her four times. Apparently she was screaming enough to wake the neighbours um, the, and was sent to prison for it. Uh, was sent to prison for murder for, was sent for originally five years. That was bumped up to eight years because the the Supreme Court of Appeal um, described his earlier term as shockingly lenient. Um, then his, he was initially denied parole in March last year and then was just let out today, I believe. Yes, of course, he came to fame, first of all, as a Paralympic champion. Mm-hmm. He was an extraordinary runner, John. But it does seem incredible that less than nine years in jail and he's now out on release. Yeah, it's remarkable. People might remember him from the 2012 Olympics. Uh, he was known as the Blade Runner, obviously, as the, the first double amputee to, to compete uh, at, at an Olympics. And that made him a world figure. And then within, within I think, 12 months, he, he had actually uh, committed the murder. And yeah, it is quite amazing that his conviction wasn't of manslaughter. This was actually a murder conviction. And it has, it has since been, like, he's currently on parole. That parole kicked in, I think, a couple of days ago. So he'll be, he'll be monitored for the next number of years. But an interesting part of, of the uh, judicial system in South Africa, which is kicking in here, is this part called restorative justice. This is where they aim to have closure between the, the, the victims of the crime and the perpetrators. So rather than a purely penalty-based system, and this arises, of course, as part of the, the, the post-apartheid settlement, where to avoid violence, the idea was to have restorative justice and forgiveness on all sides. And, and it appears that Pistorius, is uh, they've cut him a huge amount of slack in terms of, of his sentence uh, on the basis that he engages, for example, in anger management. Now, you might say after you've murdered your girlfriend that it's a little bit late for anger management lessons, but this is part of his restorative process is that he has to learn to deal with that. And I think it's also important to say, having just talked about uh, Depardieu, this really is another example of men behaving very, very badly. There's no question that underpinning this mat is misogyny. And what about the British Foreign Secretary, not Foreign Secretary, Home Secretary, James Cleverly? Yeah, James Cleverly is, uh, the best thing I can say about him is he's not very clever. He's, hmm. he, he, he really isn't. He, he makes some incredibly obnoxious statements. That This, this is, has been a recurring theme with James Cleverly that he continually puts his foot in it. And his most recent one, uh, at a, a sort of a private drinks thing uh, just before Christmas, uh, he invoked the, the hilarious idea that maybe he might uh, dose his wife up with rohypnol. Oh, when you say hilarious, you had that in inverted commas. In very inverted Just in case that. anyone misquotes Absolutely, you. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we just make sure we get that across. Yeah, but basically, cle- cleverly, as part of... And it reminded me when I read about it, it reminded me of Donald Trump's infamous... Uh, remarks that were caught uh, off camera and this is the so-called locker room talk it's really appalling remark the idea that uh, a woman should be should be basically dosed up with rohypnol <laughs> and of course as ever when people say things like this he turns around and says oh no uh, I didn't mean that I meant it as a joke and I suppose that the terrible part or the really dreadful part about this is that his department a few days before this statement his department had actually issued new improved guidelines in the UK on violence against women and girls, including date rape. So clearly it was in his mind. And this was obviously some attempt at humour, but it came across like a, a, I mean, like a, a train wreck. And it is, it does, I think it's worrying because 
what it's saying really is the, the subliminal part of his mind is this is the minister in charge of this and this is what he really thinks in an unguarded moment. So I don't know, I think we're kind of at uh, the sort of the tail end of a fairly rotten Tory regime that has been in government, Matt, far too long and needs to be put out of its misery. And you know when you've got people of the of the, the stature of James Cleverly that we really, really sorely need need a new government. Okay, Lululemon is a fashion brand that is internationally very popular, but its billionaire founder Chip Wilson said this week that he he slammed the company's diversity and inclusion efforts. Kate, why? What were those efforts that so offend him? So basically he said that he uh that brands should commit to their original purpose and should only be sold for really one demographic. And what he's kind of saying here, for people who are unfamiliar with Lululemon, there's a shop of it on Grafton Street now these days. It's uh, active wear, fitness wear, uh, primarily known for their very soft leggings. Um, And so what he is kind of saying around those words, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but basically saying that they should be sold to slim white women. Um, there were, Apparently there were a certain amount of um, complaints saying that some of the leggings were see-through. He was blaming the see-throughness on the size of these people's bodies who were wearing them. Um, and it's just Abercrombie 2.0 in that, um, for those who don't remember, um, Abercrombie & Fitch, which has recently undergone an overhaul um, because its previous system was based around how they wanted uh, cool, thin, young, beautiful people wearing them to the point that the bits that didn't sell, instead of donating them to charity or whatever, they burned them and they only uh, they only listed them in certain sizes, all of which were still extremely small. And so this seems to be going down exactly the same path and I'm not entirely sure why. To finish, let's talk about an Irish story, one that came from the Irish Times at the start of the week, an interview with the head of the Rotunda Hospital who revealed, John, that they have staff commuting from Spain who stay in the nurses' accommodation at the hospital and then, having done their week of shifts, head back to Spain because they can't afford to live in Dublin. Yeah, it's it's one of the, the those sign of the time kind of stories. Now, I suppose for context, it isn't that they're heading home at five o'clock in the evening and, and flying to Spain and they're coming back in the next morning. They're clearly doing this, for example, uh, heading home for one one week in the month yeah. and then spending some of the rest of the time in the accommodation that's provided. Now, this is a, a point. There's the 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 rotunda has a has in house accommodation for some of its staff. It amounts to seventy rooms, and they reckon about thirty five to forty of these are for short term stays. And it does point to something that um, hospitals in particular, they need staff to be accessible to them. And yet, um, what we have is a chronic lack of accommodation. And one, Matt, that springs to my mind, just on a related story to this, is St. Vincent's Hospital in, in, in Ballsbridge. Um, a number of years ago, Vincent's Hospital had a huge uh, multi-storey nurses uh, block on campus. And that, for reasons best known to them, they tore it down about 20 years ago and they replaced it with a car park, right? So that was accommodation where, and it was mostly for trainee nurses, so they would live on site. I think it was designed by the nuns to keep an eye on them, if, if, if memory serves. But the reality is, you could refurb, get up with the times, and the point is, imagine how valuable it would be today, instead of yet another car park, if you had a 10, 12, 15-storey, multi-storey, modern accommodation block right on campus. I mean, if you go across the road to UCD, that's what you have. We have to leave it there. We're out of time. John Gibbons, Kate DeMolder, thank you very much for being with us. John will be back next Thursday for his weekly environment spot. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.